Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. One of the joys of childhood is hearing the ice cream truck's music from blocks away. The anticipation of snacking on a favorite treat is infectious. Once you see the truck, it's on. Alas, that experience is not only for the youth. Adults can feel the mouth-watering excitement when they see their favorite food truck pull up. About a decade ago, the food truck scene in Nashville really started to pick up steam. Today, we've got offerings from all across the globe, from the Caribbean to Mexico to Japan and beyond. We'll explore that thriving scene later this hour. Nashville is home to a large and growing multicultural population. We'll sp- we speak a lot of languages in this town, Spanish, Arabic, Kurdish, Somali, Vietnamese, and Farsi. And that's just naming a few. But what is it like for folks who speak those languages navigating life in Nashville? And that's what, what is the city doing to help? That's the question reporter Kelsey Byler asked in her cover story for this week's Nashville Scene. And she joins us now to answer it. Kelsey, thanks for being here and welcome back to This is Nashville. Yeah, thanks for having me. Love coming around here. It's great to have you with us. So... Tell us what made you want to write this story. So in, well, a few months ago, I wrote a story about uh, Metro Nashville Public Schools English learner population. And I mean, it's it's huge. It's more than um, a quarter of the district. And there's like more than 22,000 students who are considered LEP, um, which is limited English proficient, meaning they're active English learners or they um, are a few years out of that program. And after I wrote that, I, I got an email from Deanna Sanchez Vega, who ended up you know, I quoted in the article and she was like, let me show you this entire world of, um, you know, language access and, and interpretation and all these other things. And so, you know, we started talking and, and that ended up in the story. So when we're talking about our multilingual community here in Nashville, how many different languages are we talking about? Oh my, I mean, so many. I mean, I mean, there's like over definitely over 100 represented within MNPS. I, wow. I might be wrong. Fact check me here. But I want to say close to 140. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. It's almost like New York or something. Yeah. Now, you report that MNPS is a, has a program that's teaching students English, but how is learning a new language different for adults? So MNPS uh, is unique in that all of those English acquisition services are centralized within kind of the school system. And so school-age um, students, they, they have access to kind of a range of supports and, and stuff like that built into their education. Uh, adults, it's it's harder for them to find, you know, those services. There's not one centralized place for all of that. And, and then there are, of course, all of the barriers that adults face to, you know, transportation schedules. They have to take care of their kids first before they can start taking English clashes. And just there's just so many things. And so it's definitely um, there are a ton of barriers. You know, in your story, you address the idea that people who don't speak English can't or don't want to. But what did you hear from the people you talked to? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge, I mean, multilingual, emergent bilingual folks are, from what I've heard, um, there are so many that, you know, really, obviously, you want to speak the language in, in the place that you're in, right? And it's not that they don't want to or they can't. It's just that, they're like I mentioned, those barriers. And there's also just not enough English classes available. And then, again, with the schedules and all of that kind of stuff. Now, were you surprised by anything from your reporting? 
kinds of stuff. I was surprised at um, the, well, and first too, I want to say just grateful for everybody who shared their expertise with me. Um, as a native English speaker, this isn't something that I interact with on a daily basis. And so I'm really grateful to everybody who shared their experiences with me. But I was surprised and fascinated by just all of the um, nuances that come with just language and linguistics, right? So um, like Lydia Youssef from the Muhammad Center mentioned, uh, Arabic in Nashville looks different than Arabic in New York because of all of the um, migration history and stuff like that. Another thing that was really interesting to me that I had never thought about was American Sign Language is its own entire language, right? It's not just English with hands. It's it's its own language, and for some mm -hmm. people, it's their native language. Mm. Now, in your story, you mentioned Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about what that is and why it's important? Absolutely. Um, so Title VI, I don't remember the specific language, but it, you know, it basically just uh, kind of demands equitable access for all kinds of folks, right, and regardless of their, in this case, national origin or, or whatever it may be. And then there was a executive order that came out uh, around 2000 that kind of honed in on what that means regarding language and language access and just the fact that um, and it's, it's, it's relatively flexible, right? But organizations that receive federal funding, they need to take, and I'm quoting this here, reasonable steps to ensure meaningful access. Um, and, and that looks different for different organizations. So is this where we get the concept of language justice? Yes. Okay. Now, Tell us what kind of disparities can language access create or make worse? Well, I mean, just think about all of the things that we as a city need to know to, or we as, you know, residents of Nashville need to know to interact with the city, right? Like from tornado warnings to when COVID-19 happened and all of the information that was rolling out there to um, business codes and, and healthcare applications. I mean, all of these things you know, they're just, they're, they're vital to living here. And, and if, if English isn't your first, I mean, they're complicated for English speakers, right? And mm -hmm. so if English isn't your first language and you're navigating it as a new language, that becomes infinitely more difficult. Uh, and, and so, yeah. And so, I mean, there's a requirement for organizations, federally funded organizations to help people who are not, who don't speak English, um, you know, navigate that. Yeah. Tell me this, how important is like interpreting language for someone different from what people might expect. Like, you know, we hear about language interpreters. It's more than just someone knowing two languages, right? Mm -hmm. That was something that was also very fascinating to learn about. Um, to be bilingual does not mean that you are an interpreter and that you can go interpret in any setting. I mean, there's a range of qualifications and skills necessary. And, you know, sometimes having anybody that can speak your language in the room is better than nothing, but having a professional interpreter, I mean, they, there's a range of things that, that they're trained to do professionally, right? Whether it's industry specific vocab, um, mm -hmm. regarding to maybe education or healthcare or whatever, to a code of ethics, to the professional boundaries necessary to maintain professional relationships, as well as sometimes of necessary advocacy, um, all of these kinds of things are, go into interpretation as a profession. What did the folks tell you about approaching sensitive situations like doctor's appointments? Yeah, um, all kinds of stuff, right? The, I mean, for some, it's hard to find an interpreter for doctor's appointments at all. Um, it, ideally, you'd have doctors who can speak the languages, right? Because imagine explaining something that is going on with your health, which is, you know, sensitive stuff, hard to talk about, and then relying on someone else to 
communicate that for you and not even being entirely sure if they're doing so correctly, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're giving you the information from the medical provider correctly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, depending on the office, I think some medical providers, it sounds like some are more set up to um, host interpretation services than others. And and there are challenges, of course, that, that come with that as well. Now, tell us what organizations are currently doing good work around language access. There are a ton. I mean, the city has a bunch of nonprofit organizations who, like El Mahaba, they provide interpreters um, and bridges for the deaf and hard of hearing. They provide ASL interpreters. And and there are all kinds of places that you can go um, with interpreters. And then just different organizations like um, TURC, I believe that's the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. You know, they help and Conexion America. So they help distribute that information um, to different communities who you know, might not be getting that information or might not quite know how to interact with that inter- information. And so they're doing important work. And yeah. What are you keeping an eye out for as this story develops? I would just love to see more spaces that celebrate multilingual people. I mean, I mentioned it in my story. There's this group, the the Nashville Spanish English Conversation Group, and, and they just get together every few weeks and People go and practice um, their English and their Spanish together, and mm. it's really fun. I mean, they do it at bars usually, and so you can get drinks and just meet new people and practice this stuff. And um, it, it's a really great example of just the joy that comes in opening spaces for multilingual communities. And I'd love to see just more spots like that in so many of the other languages that are represented in town. And then, of course, um, I'd love to see just Metro continuing to improve on on what they're able to do as well. That language group sounds like something I should check out. Let's see. <laughs> Kelsey Byler is a reporter for the Nashville scene. You can find the link to her story in this episode's post at thisisnashville.org. Kelsey, as always, thanks for being here and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. We've got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get to ride on a food truck. I'm just kidding. But we will meet some local food truck operators and learn how the scene has changed over the years. What are your favorite food trucks to check out? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Food trucks offer a variety of delectable eats. If you've ever been to an event where there are multiple food trucks lined up, making a decision can be excruciating. Will you go for tacos or classic barbecue? How about vegan soul food? Yes, the options seem to be endless in this town, and the list is only growing. Food trucks have been a long part of our local culinary scene, with offerings posted up at gas stations and vacant lots up and down Nolensville Pike. But about a decade ago, the scene has started, really started to grow. So how has our local food truck scene developed in the years since? My next guest knows about that as she was a part of that wave of food trucks that hit our city in the 2010s. Crystal Delano Bogan is co-owner of the Grilled Cheesery Food Truck. Crystal, thanks for being with us and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. This is so exciting. We welcome any uh, spotlight to shine on our amazing food truck scene here in Nashville. Well, I welcome grilled cheese anytime. So yeah, thank me too. You. Still. That's right. That's right. So in, in 2010, you and your husband, you decided to start a food truck. I'm sure thousands of Nashvillians are thanking you for that choice. Tell us, though, 
What inspired you to take on this venture? So I originally hail from Los Angeles. I know, boo. Um, but we've been <laughs> been here for a while. So my husband uh, was uh, raised here in Tennessee in Hendersonville. So when we moved back here to be with his family, um, you know, I was I was a trained chef. Uh, he was a musician. You know, classic story. Uh, back here in you know just. Seeing what we missed in Los Angeles, the food truck culture is so prominent there. Uh, me being a Mexican background, I uh, missed that taco truck kind of late night scene. Mm-hmm. So as a chef, you know, working in fine dining, I didn't even think of food truck until really seeing what was lacking here. You know, we were looking at restaurant spaces here in Nashville, and just being two, you know, young entrepreneurs the cost of starting a restaurant is massively more of a, a, you know, a commitment than, than trying out a food truck. So we used it almost as like a, just a testing kind of like, Oh, was this a good concept? Mm -hmm. Which a lot of restaurants used to do in the beginning. Like, let's see if the public actually wants this and what areas were more, more, more popular in. So we thought it might just be kind of a, you know, a temporary thing, not a, 12 year in the (laughs) going thing. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Now, take us back in time to the first night of service. What was that like for you? Oh my God. So we had our first food truck. We've had three or four, I can't even count, um, since uh, the first one was a total junker. Um, Our first service was at the Nashville scene and we were serving every food blogger and critic because, you know, you want your first service to be to all the people that really matter and like uh, write about you, right? No, maybe have a practice shift before Crystal, you know? That's a high <laughs> um, stake shift. So right it was there. me and my sister, just the two of us, and my fryer caught on fire hmm. and I had to use the fire extinguisher and wow. I couldn't serve half of my guests. Wow. And the line was down the street. Okay. So it was very um, not ideal. So, uh, you know, I woke up and was like, okay, this is a thing. I got to get serious, you know? Um, I got to I I didn't I don't who knows how to run a food truck before they actually do. You know, this mm. is like a new thing for all of us and all of our trucks are so different. Like I can't walk into Tennessee Cobbler and know how to run their truck or Bedia Babe's trailer and know how to run her truck. I mean, same. All of our trucks have little nuances and little, you know, little quirks about them that we all have to know, you know. And so my truck, I did not know. So I had to get really familiar with my truck. Um, I had it inspected, like overly inspected, um, to make sure everything was safe. I got new equipment. It was such more of an investment than I thought, Mm. which kind of, you know, leads us into like what it actually takes to run a food truck. We're going to get to that later (laughs) on in the show, but you know, tell us what was the food, food truck scene like then? There was not a food truck scene. Um, the food truck scene was like us and a couple taco trucks and, um, uh, there was a ch- like a hot chocolate trailer. Um, uh, all of us who I'm still really good friends with because we all kind of like just powwowed about like how do we do this here. Mm-hmm. Um, there was there is always there all has always been stationary taco trucks like on Nolansville, um, but that they stayed stationary. So really, even just asking them how to do certain things, they never went anywhere. So it was a totally different beast. Um, and we're not a hot dog cart. We had totally different 
regulations. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really like kind of a blank page for Nashville. And luckily the mayor really stood behind us, which is so great because he really, he would have us out for his meetings and hire us for certain things. I mean, just really kind of welcomed the food truck scene, which was huge for us because we had no legislation. We had nothing like we had no permit to buy, to Mm -hmm. even pay for. So we would just like roll up and then get maybe kicked out. Some days <laughs> it was very, it was very, uh, it, like it, renegade style. it was very renegade. We didn't have apps. We didn't have any kind of, we just had Twitter, you know, wow. and, uh, it was like, we're here. Oh shoot. We have to leave because this person complained. We're going to be two blocks down and people would find us. It was, it was a, a really fun and like kind of exciting time to be a food truck. Yeah. Uh, 12 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Grandma over here. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like like a wonderful Wild West environment. So let's bring in in a few more food truck owners now. Jamie Daniels. Joe is the owner of the Tennessee Cobbler Food Truck and president emeritus of the NFTA. And Chef Nadine Moore is owner of Beria Babe Food Truck. Thank you both for being here. Nadine, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me. Jamie, three words. Cobbler. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Seriously, though. Okay, so like, how did you come up with the idea for a dessert-based food truck? Well, it actually stemmed from our wedding. So I met my husband here in Nashville, and um, at our wedding, we had a traditional cake, but we also, um, I was going to display all of my grandmother's handwritten recipes mm. at our wedding. And so she had a lot of like cobblers and cakes and pies and things. The night before our wedding, myself, my aunt, and my mom got together. We baked a lot of those recipes to display at the wedding for people to enjoy. And it was a hit. People loved it. They still talk about that more than they do our cake or anything else at the wedding. So following the wedding, um, we were working in a restaurant downtown, and my husband had always wanted to own a food truck. He's, his family comes from a restaurant background as well, and I loved to bake. I would always bring snacks in for the coworkers and things, and I enjoyed that. And we just thought there was a space here for that. There wasn't too many like dessert-based food trucks, and we thought, let's give it a go. So, so far, so good. That's right. It's real good. <laughs> so, you know, how is starting a food truck different from opening a brick-and-mortar restaurant? Um, well, you know, I've never owned a brick and mortar restaurant. So I would say, obviously, you know, leaning on what Crystal said earlier, it is a little bit, I would think, smaller scale to start off with. Um, but once you get into it, you realize that there's a lot of similarities to things. There's a lot of the same issues that you're going to face as far as restrictions or inspection, safety. Um, you know, of course, we're all dealing with food. So there's always the food safety uh, inspect, uh, in impact um, that you're going to have. But, I, you know, I think when you have a restaurant, you're, you're stable, right? Like you're in one location, you're not moving. So when you have a mobile food unit, you have to follow all of those guidelines, but then they change daily because you never know where you're going to go. So Mm. it depends on if you have a large corporate event, a small private event, if you're at a huge festival, everything is constantly changing around you. So you don't have that stability of it's the same day in and day out. It's going to change every hour at an event. You never know what the first hour of CMA Fest may hold versus the 12th hour of CMA wow. Fest. So it's constantly changing in a food truck. I think that's one of the biggest issues. So you got to be very malleable. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, Nadine, I know our listeners have heard of Beria Babe, but for anyone out there who have been missing out, tell them about your food truck. 
Beauty of Babe is a product of COVID. Um, I, I got laid off from my job and I said, I want to be my own boss. Uh, I wanted a food truck since I was 16 and we started Beauty of Babe up to make the best media in Nashville. Our goal is to sole focus on making great, great media, uh, Mexican inspired stew turned into tacos. And that is our goal is to create great food, great vibes and meet people and feed them. That's all I want to do. Mm-hmm. I think you're doing it very well. So thank you for that. Now, you know, some restaurateurs, they spend a lot of time getting the their shop up and running, but then they hand it over to managers to leave for the day-to-day operations. Is that the same for food trucks? I think food trucks are super personal, especially right now with Bidia Babe. She's in the stage where, and I call her she, but she is me. Um, hmm. But we're basically, I create everything that is on Bidia Babe with my husband. Um, we, from the sauces to the tortillas to everything, we do it from scratch ourselves. Um, and managing and growing is the hardest part, I think, for me personally, because I'm fully involved in every aspect of the business right now. And eventually, yes, we will get to the point where we will have to hire other managers and other staff and cashiers. Um, And I have a few that help us out for festivals and whatnot, but I'm still fully hands in with everything that we do. And I don't see that changing. And I think uh, the best part about food trucks growing up, and we've eaten at a lot of food trucks in Philadelphia and in New York, um, and we supported them, but they were families and they were dreams and they were people. Um, And I really enjoyed that intense connection between a person creating food and you eating that food. And there's nothing in between that. Um, And that's why I really love the food truck scene because it's mostly just that. It's us creating great food and wanting people to eat that food from us. Um, And that's what I live for. And that's why I like a food truck versus a brick and mortar because there's nothing else. There's no frills. It's just me and the food and you. Mm -hmm. And that's my favorite part. And if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lekolota. We're talking this hour about Nashville's food truck scene with Crystal DeLuna Bogan, Jamie Daniels Joe, and Nadine Moore. What's your favorite food truck in town? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. So, you know, Crystal, in addition to running the Grilled Cheesery, you are also now the acting president of the Nashville Food Truck Association, or NFTA. How does this group help food truck operators in the city? I mean, this group is the reason why food trucks are operating right now. Mm. Um, The Nashville Food Truck Association was created so we had a a sense of community around what these permits and the legislation was for food trucks. Um, So it was created uh, so we could be a group of people to move forward um, this industry. So I think that what like Jamie Joe has done and and what past, you know, uh, boards have done for the food truck association is, um, immeasurable. Uh, there would be no food truck scene. So I think people that don't understand that don't know how hard it was for, I know personally for me, I mean, I, when we first were serving to think that maybe a day that we thought we were going to have, I mean, I had, I've had employees since the beginning because we've luckily been so busy a day that I have to pay my employees and be asked to leave an area because we didn't have proper permitting or there was complaints. Uh, you know, that's real, real scary, shaky business to be running. Mm -hmm. Um, now we have the, the, you know, the capability to, to be booking and it's, 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 
totally different scene now. What kind of specific policies are you all advocating for? So that's a great question for Jamie Jo because she's been so on top of it. Um, right now, it's our fire permits, our statewide fire permits. Um, there's just some outdated, just, you know, we're new. We're, it's, this is still a new thing for the Tennessee. So um, outdated uh you know, rules in every county, everything is, is different. Uh, we, we're just trying to streamline it, make it make sense. Um, and that's basically what, you know, has been her platform while she's been president, which we're so grateful for. Now, Jamie, you were the first female president of NFTA. That's right. Mm -hmm. Tell me, add on, what other policies are you all advocating for? Um, so like Crystal said, the main thing right now and the very important thing is a statewide fire permit. So many people don't realize in the state of Tennessee, um, food trucks currently have to be registered and get permitted in every single municipality in which we serve. Mm. There's over 350 municipalities in the state of Tennessee. So yeah. if I want to serve in um, Franklin, Mount Juliet, Smyrna, Murfreesboro, Nashville, I have to be permitted in every single one of those and every permit costs money. So that's the first burden. Um, and we tried to tackle that last year. And, and unfortunately, we did not make it past the second around a committee at the state legislature to get a statewide permit, a mobile food permit. This year, however, we went back with the idea of, okay, we at least need a statewide fire permit. Our state health permit is, or our health permits are accepted statewide. However, the fire permits are not. So for every one of those municipalities that we have to be permitted in, we also have to be fire inspected in. Mm -hmm. And in order for us to have a fire inspection, unlike a restaurant where the fire inspectors come to the location, we have to close our business for the day go to each of these municipalities, the government agency, wherever they do their inspections, talk to their fire safety person, have an inspection, pay for that, and then return home. So not only do we lose a shift, a day of business, our employees lose a day of wages. And so it's just a major inconvenience, and it's also affecting the way that we operate our business. So you have all these small businesses, you're forcing them to close down multiple days a year just to be inspected before they can be permitted to pay more fees. And that's what we're working on right now with the state um, legislatures. Hopefully we can get a statewide goal Gold standard fire permit will not affect the local permits at all. It's just an additional permit that if we want to get one that's statewide, it will be accepted statewide. Now, how does NFTA support people who may not be well represented in the food industry? Um, I think that, so we're working really hard right now this year on like providing more guidance to people, like those that are coming in that have questions and um, may need answers. I know years ago there was a, like a PDF packet, like guide thing that was given out to new food truckers and things. Um, and that's one thing we're trying to bring back is just to help give more guidance when they have questions. I know that when we first started, I had never owned a food truck. I'd never owned a restaurant. I had been in the service industry for many, many years, but as far as the ownership part, I had mm -hmm. never, you know, went down that path. And so the very first event that we ever did, um, I met someone who was on the board of the NFTA at the time and they welcomed us in. They invited us in and said, you know what? We have a community of people here. If you have questions, feel free to ask questions. And that's been one of the biggest things that NFTA has always been. When we, people ask, like, what do you do? You know, we have a community here that we can bounce ideas off each other. If you anything minor from, hey, who can do fridge repairs to, mm -hmm. you know, hey, guys, can I park here? What's the permitting process like? Where do I call for this repair, that repair? Those things like that are completely invaluable to people that, like, you know, come in off the street and don't know anything about food trucking. So I think that's one of the best things about it is the community around NFTA. Now, Nadine, I saw you shaking your head in agreement when Jamie was talking about all of the things, particularly when it came to, like, repair. How is the community of food truck operators, how does that, how, how diverse is it and how, how do you all help each other? 
Uh, I think it's really awesome, actually, since I've been in the Nashville scene, how much support I've found, especially from women-owned businesses um, and other food trucks. We have a Slack channel that we all talk on with each other um, that helps us kind of talk about repairs and how do I fix this? Who do you know a mechanic that you can trust? Um, And that's really awesome, just having a app that we can all talk on, which is is, is a really tight-knit community at that point that we all support each other with. Um, But also, yeah, again, being a women-owned business in this industry, I've actually had the pleasure of meeting so many other women who are, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but kick butt. um, Oh, yeah, you can say that on (laughs) there. Kick ass. um, Women who are really strong and are able to carry themselves in this industry of all the woes that we have to deal with of being on the road. It's not the same as being in a restaurant because everything moves, everything spills. Um, But again, this community has been such a pleasure to be a part of um, and is super supportive, which I did not expect being from restaurants in New York City where everyone is so cutthroat Mm. and there is no such thing as community. Uh, Here in Nashville, I actually experienced the exact opposite. And being in a woman in this industry, I was expecting to kind of feel like an outcast but I actually feel really more accepted than I ever have in this industry. Now, Nadine mentioned the uh, tenuous relationship between uh, restaurateurs in New York City. What's the relationship between the restaurant industry and food trucks like here, Jamie? Um, You know, I think it's getting better. I think things are starting to change. Um, I think it all comes down to, honestly, education like and perspective. Um, you know, we all want to protect what's ours, and we all want to protect, like, our babies. And, and just as our food trucks are our babies, you know, people's restaurants are their babies, and that's their investments and things that they've poured their, you know, life's blood into and their work for their family. Um, so it's understandable that people want to protect their, you know, their things. Um, however, I think a lot of disagreements or concerns always stem from misunderstanding standings or a lack of education about things. Most of our many, not, you know, many food truck owners grow into brick and mortar restaurants. Um, Many brick and mortar restaurants now have mobile units. So they act, you know, together and we're all here together. There's been many studies done. Um, The Institute for Justice, the National Chamber of Commerce have all done studies that show that there is no, um, like food trucks don't cause any disparities with restaurants. They don't cause any, um, they don't take away anything from restaurants. They actually drive business to restaurants. So when there's a food truck nearby, it does tend to create more foot traffic. And and everyone at the end of the day, you know, they're going to eat what they want to eat. If I want tacos, I'm not going to go to a pizza place. I'm going to go find me some tacos, you know? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people just need to remember is that we're all here together. We're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to provide for our families. Um, and there's space for everyone. That is Jamie Daniels, Joe, owner of the Tennessee Cobbler Food Truck. She was joined by Chef Nadine Moore, owner of Beria Babe Food Truck. I want to thank you both for being with us today. Chef Crystal De Luna Bogan will stick with us through the break. Thank you again for having us. When we come back, we'll dig into the nuts and bolts of operating a food truck. How much work is it? What do you love about Nashville's food trucks? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. 
Today, we are discussing our city's thriving food truck scene. You know how we do it. It's lunchtime, and we're talking about food. I think I can hear stomachs growling from the control room. But before the break, we learned about how the food truck scene has grown over the years. What does it take to run and operate a food truck? To learn more about that, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Marcio Flores is the owner and operator of Inca Trailer and specializes in Peruvian cuisine. He is joined by Daniel Yarzagaray, owner of Chivanada Truck. Mar- Mar- Marcio, Daniel, thank you both so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so before we get into the process of opening a truck, I want to hear what inspired you both to take the leap to start one yourselves. Marcio, what about you? Well, it all, all started uh, basically uh, missing my roots, missing Peruvian cuisine and missing that South American or, you know, Latino uh, cuisine here in Nashville, Tennessee. I went to Nashville State, uh, learned how to cook and, and decided to open a food truck after going to many restaurants in Nashville. Tell us about what you offer. Well, we do uh, Peruvian cuisine, but Peruvian street food like sandwiches, uh, star fries, ceviches, empanadas, and many other things that, uh, you know, like uh, beef fried rice, chicken fried rices, mm-hmm. and uh, plantains, yuca fries, and all of that. Oh, man, I'm yeah. hungry. What what makes Peruvian food perfect for food trucks? Uh, it's very casual. You can have a sandwich, a pork belly sandwich. You can have a uh, lomo saltado, which is rice, beef. Uh, you can have fries with all of our sauces, chorizo on top. And it's very accessible for people. Mm-hmm. Now, Daniel, I understand that you've wanted a food truck for a long time. Definitely. What What persuaded you to take that leap? So before food trucking, I worked a corporate job in Franklin. I was working in medical software. And for me, there were two things. One, the career paths that I saw going forward weren't anything I really wanted to do. And the other was I always wanted to own my own business. So I went to Colombia, visited my abuelita for a couple of weeks, and I came back with a lot of inspiration from that trip. This was 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. And at that point, I basically made the decision, I'm going to open a food truck. So it was a long time in the making for me. You spoke to your abuelita about everything. (laughs) Yeah, I did. So tell us what type of food you offer. Yeah, so we do Colombian street food, uh, specifically northern coastal. So my family's from Cartagena. So there's a lot of difference between the interior region style of food that a lot of people know. So a lot of people know Bandeja Paisa, which is a very heavy plate. But on the coast, you see very, very different food. And we focus on that street food you see in the northern coastal part of Colombia. Okay, so, you know, I imagine that the first step in starting a food truck is obtaining a truck. Marcio, how'd you get yours? Uh, I went all the way to Orlando. Uh, they built our truck. They have already a kitchen, you know, the flat top, the hood. Everything was done. And uh, the next step was where should I park it, you know? So <laughs> yeah, uh, we went to the Nashville Farmer's Market. We're still there. And it's, it was an awesome place for us to begin, you know, and start promoting our now, when you got the truck, was it ready to go or did you have to make modifications? Uh, I made a couple of them, but it wasn't too much. It wasn't crazy. You it, know? it wasn't like, yeah. what did you, you do to fix it up? I put, uh, well, all the, the stickers outside the uh, foot truck. That took me about three days to do it uh, because I've never known. I have to have a hair dryer, spray bottle, <laughs> <laughs> put it all over the food truck and do it precisely because I didn't know how to do it. Uh-huh. Watch a couple of YouTube videos and made it work. 
Okay, so, you know, Daniel, tell us about your build-out build out process. What was that like? Yeah, it wasn't so smooth. Uh, we <laughs> hired a builder in Louisville because we wanted to do a bus. We had this idea to do something that emulated the Jiva, which is the Colombian country bus, right? So we wanted to do a food truck built from a school bus. We found a builder in Louisville that specialized in this, at least that's what we thought. We got a bus, we sent it to him. A couple of months later, we got it back, and we decided to run our first shift, right? Friends okay. and family okay. thought we knew what we were doing. And everything that could went wrong did go wrong. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, we're talking fan blades in the range hood melted into the motor, started an electrical fire. And uh, we were, it felt post-apocalyptic because all the electrical was flashing in there. And then the whole truck powered down and made a big boom sound. It was oh, very scary. Man. Yeah. That's something else. So obviously you went to have fixes made. Did you do those yourselves? Uh, we did most of those ourselves. We also found a fantastic nuclear welder. I'm not kidding. Hmm. Who did a lot of repairs for us as well. Uh, and he was kind of our Santa Claus. He saved us. So, yeah. How, how long did it take for you to make those changes? Oh, it probably was about... Almost a year. Wow. Yeah, it took forever. A lot of dedication. Yeah. Now, Krista De Luna, De Luna Bogan, owner of Grilled Cheesery, is still with us. You know, did you have similar struggles when you started out? Yes, all the, all the struggles. Um, so we've built out three different trucks. All of them are different. Just depends on how much money you have. So in the beginning, we paid for our truck in cash. So that means that truck was a piece of garbage. <laughs> so we did not know all the things that were wrong. Like I said earlier, the high limit was taken off of our fryer. And if we don't know uh, what a high limit is, it's what causes your fryer not to get to 500 degrees. It's what keeps it at a steady temperature of what's supposed to be around 300, 350 degrees. Um, so that was taken off. So it was just essentially just like an open flame on oil. Um, and so once we got all those things fixed, we started just to become, uh, I just became really educated and uh, repairing things um, and knowing who to call for repairs because then there was mm. not one person that's ever worked on a food truck in Nashville. Um, so I found my guys, you know, and um, basically after every shift I had, they were tweaking things so I could get to the next shift. Okay. Um, and then we, um, you know, we were busy. We we got a little money and we built a food truck out from nothing. So that basically is finding a chassis, which is a base, um, uh, and your truck, and then building out from from scratch. And we did that in New Jersey uh, with a custom truck company, which was the truck we're currently um, operating in now. Okay. Now, you know, your truck, it serves grilled cheese sandwiches, which is a novel and very, very cool idea. How'd you come up with that? So as a, just like a classically trained chef, um, I uh, always, my my style of cooking being from Southern California was always just like what was in season. Um, whatever was around me was kind of the inspiration. So when I came here and I was working here, I was like, what is what are the ingredients that are at our disposal? Um, we actually have seasons here in Tennessee. So um, not everything was available year round like it was in California. So I had to pick something that would be the same but change. So um, I wanted something that was a blank canvas. And I always, always made grilled cheese for my team when we were for family meal. Mm -hmm. That was always the thing when Crystal was on family meal, she made grilled cheese. And, um, you know, we got to mix in all of the fine dining ingredients that like, you know, left over from the service um, yeah. at night. And I've worked at places from Disney to Four Seasons to amazing mom and pop restaurants. And fancy. Fancy. So, you nice. know, we got, you know, there was pork belly and foie gras and there was all these... And 
And it's like the options were endless and it spoke to everybody in the restaurant, dishwashers okay. to servers to hey, we GMs, all, you we, know. We all love it these days. I have a question, though. Okay, once you all are prepared to go, how do you decide where in the city to park the truck? Crystal, real quick. That's a good question. Um, uh, wherever the people are, that's where you want to okay. be. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Marcio. Well, uh, we build our customers to come at the farmer's market on the weekends. So during the week, I go everywhere. And when we have like a festival um, at Centennial Park, we go there. Uh, Music Corner, we go there. Um, you know, like we try to go to different festivals to also please other crowds. All right. Mm -hmm. So for me, I tend to look a lot on the booking apps. So you've got Street Food Finder, Best Food Trucks. These apps uh, have open bookings that I find. Uh, what's best for me? What fits, uh, you know, my crowd? Where are they? And uh, we'll just grab open dates on those apps. And so you'll see a lot of local Nashville spots on those. And I'll just grab those and go from there. Now, is having a website and a social media presence key? It's a must. It's an absolute must. It was Absolutely. the only way people found us for the grilled cheesery in the beginning was tweeting. Yeah. How, how important is word of mouth? It's everything. 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 Mm -hmm. That's Marketing. the make or break for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to imagine that the pandemic made for a real moment for food trucks. Marcio, tell me, how did the pandemic change the way you reached out to customers? It was really tough. Everything uh, shut down. And for us, uh, thankfully, the uh, Food Truck Association provided us with neighborhoods. So we started to go to different neighborhoods around Nashville, even, you know, outside Nashville as well. And uh, I worked for uh, Connection Americas at the kitchen at Connection Americas, and they gave me great opportunities as well for World Center Kitchen and, you know, like provide big caterings as well. So it was tough, but we made it through. Real quick, I've got just about a minute left. Now, Daniel, both you and Crystal both have brick and mortar restaurants, but you have a spot in Geodis Park. We do. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Tell me real quick how that came to be. Yeah, we were really blessed. Uh, we basically cold emailed the team at Nashville SC. Okay. And uh, they actually were monitoring their inbox and they responded and they were very, very uh, receptive to the idea that we would go in there. We negotiated for a couple of months and uh, they were fantastic to work with. I cannot say enough good things about that team. And we were off to the races. How has being there helped the brand of your business? It's like putting gasoline on a fire. Uh, the amount of new opportunities have been almost too difficult to try to corral because it's it's so much. Other sports stadiums have reached out, uh, at least five or six. Uh, we've had the opportunity to uh, work with other hospitality groups. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely opening a ton of doors for us, and it's creating a lot of recognition. It's been unbelievable. I want to thank my guests for coming on the show today and making me incredibly hungry. They were, they are, Mar Marcio Flores, owner of Inca Trailer, Daniel Yazagarai, owner of Chivanada Truck, and Crystal De Luna Bogan, co-owner of The Grilled Cheesery. Thanks again for making me hungry and being here. Really important. Of course, Anytime. always. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, it's Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with a fellow Middle Tennessean. Today, I'm riding with owner Laura Wilson of Citizen Kitchen out to their original location on the west side. As we heard earlier, food truck operators often use a commercial kitchen and a commissary like this one as a central hub for their businesses. Now, this Chattanooga native wasn't always a leader in her industry. I was the worst server ever. Really? Bad. I mean, 
bad. I think I spilled coffee. I just, it was just awkward. You know, I liked being there and I liked the action of the restaurant, but the owner, Sharon, was like, maybe you should try the back of the house. <laughs> that was nice. And, um, <laughs> and gave me a shot there and I loved it. The back of the house restaurant culture is a unique place. It really is. It did also serve my re rebellious teenage younger self. Um, I loved the pirate hood of it. I loved the community of it. And this was, a, you know, this was very much a different era in cooking in the back of the house. And I'm so glad finally that that, that self-tormenting culture is, is dying out in kitchens. But mm -hmm. at that time, I was fully in it. Yes, it is a time crunch. Yes, it is a very zen mindset. Mm -hmm. Because if you are working the line on a Friday night in a restaurant, there is no room for worrying about what your boyfriend did the night before because you have like 30 steaks to remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's, a, it's a very mindful place to be and mindless place to be. To me, it seems like the executive chef's reputation is staked upon the menu itself. Getting that first executive chef job and and then they were going to change the concept of the restaurant where it was and I was not happy about that. And so a few friends and I moved to New Orleans. Mm. Did the same thing over again, started as a line cook. The person that I moved to New Orleans to work for ended up throwing things, oh. screaming, yelling. Hey, listen, stop! Come here, you, you idiot. Me, I'm fing had enough. What I'm trying to tell you in your fing eyeballs. Threw an entire case of ducks at me that he didn't like how they were cooked on the. Ooh. Anyway, it was awful. So I left that job very quickly and um, applied at the newest Brennan's restaurant that was opening, Redfish Grill, and started there as a line cook and became the executive chef there within two and a half years. How did it enhance your skills as a chef? Oh, I can clean fish like a mother. <laughs> 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 so much fish. Constant, huh? Butchering so much fish. <laughs> just coming home with scales stuck to you. Yeah. Like, you know, you just didn't know you have one on your forehead. Like yeah, <laughs> it's smelling like fish all the time. All the time. You know, being in this role now, having yeah. this kitchen, this commissary for people, mm -hmm. do you ever give advice to people? Always. Yes. Yeah. Do something, no, I'm just kidding, do something else. <laughs> no, it's, um, but you gotta really love it. Yeah. You know, like it's not easy money. None of it's easy money. Mm -hmm. It's, um, but if you have to do it, you know, like if you have to do it to be happy, that's the do it, mm -hmm. do it well, you know, and do it with integrity and, um, I think, I think now I see a lot more staff and um, kitchen folks really asking 
to be paid, to be respected, to be spoken to respectfully. I'm so proud of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a I have a 14-year-old and if I thought of anyone talking to him like I was spoken to or at times how I spoke to people mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. Um they would yeah. catch my hands. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. I understand. And there we go. Oh, yes. he was there. Huh. That's why it's all locked up. Look at those guys. There we go. And so uh, this is where one of my favorite things in the world happens. So what do we have here? We have two stations run by two pizza guys. Uh, and they're like besties. And so these guys are Wednesday through Saturday night or Sunday night all making pizzas. Working next to each other, congratulating each other, like seeing who got the bigger sales and like Okay. That is the special sauce. Riding Shotgun is supported by Xander Insurance. Thanks for tuning in this hour. Next week, we'll bring you a rebroadcast of an episode we first aired last March at the start of tornado season. We've got all the resources and info you need as we enter this storm-prone season for Middle Tennessee. Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Java Hemat. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Le Colonna. We'll see you next week, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>